Welcome, and thank you for joining us tonight for episode four of Bygone Tales. Tonight we have two stories, one by Arthur Conan Doyle and one by M.R. James. Well, let's start with a little bit of information about the, uh, the author of the first story. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, born May 12, 1859, and died July 7, 1930, most of you, I'm sure, are aware of Arthur Conan Doyle from his Sherlock Holmes stories. Some of you may be aware of his, uh, of his Lost World writings, uh, his uh, Professor Challenger stories. He was convinced that his historical and spiritual writings were of much more importance, although his horror writings, especially his mummy stories, have received quite a bit of acclaim. He was a friend and contemporary of Oscar Wilde, and he was a staunch supporter of Wilde as Wilde was going through his legal problems in the late 1800s. And without further ado, let's get on to the story. The Horror of the Heights by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle The idea that the extraordinary narrative, which has been called the Joyce Armstrong Fragment, is an elaborate practical joke evolved by some unknown person cursed by a perverted and sinister sense of humor, has now been abandoned by all who have examined the matter. The most macabre and imaginative of plotters would hesitate before linking his morbid fancies with the unquestioned and tragic facts which reinforce the statement. Though the assertions contained in it are amazing and even monstrous, it is nonetheless forcing itself upon the general intelligence that they are true and that we must readjust our ideas to the new situation. This world of ours appears to be separated by a slight and precarious margin of safety from a most singular and unexpected danger. I will endeavor in this narrative, which reproduces the original document in its necessarily somewhat fragmentary form, to lay before the reader the whole of the facts up to date, prefacing my statement by saying that if there are any who doubt the narrative of Joyce Armstrong, there can be no question at all as to the facts concerning Lieutenant Myrtle, Royal Navy, and Mr. Hay Connor, who undoubtedly met their end in the manner described. The Joyce Armstrong fragment was found in the field which is called Lower Haycock, laying one mile to the westward of the village of Withyham upon the Kent and Sussex border. It was on the 15th of September last that an agricultural laborer, James Flynn, in the employment of Matthew Dodd, farmer of the Chantry Farm, Withiam, perceived a briar pipe lying near the footpath which skirts the hedge in Lower Haycock. A few paces further on, he picked up a pair of broken binocular glasses. Finally, among some nettles in the ditch, he caught sight of a flat, canvas-backed book which proved to be a notebook with detachable leaves, some of which had come loose and were fluttering along the base of the hedge. These he collected, but some, including the first, were never recovered, and leave a deplorable hiatus in this all-important statement. The notebook was taken by the laborer to his master, who in turn showed it to Dr. J. H. Atherton of Hartfield. This gentleman at once recognized the need for an expert examination, and the manuscript was forwarded to the Aero Club in London, where it now lives. The first two pages of the manuscript are missing. There is also one torn away at the end of the narrative, though none of these affect the general coherence of the story. 
It is conjectured that the missing opening is concerned with the record of Mr. Joyce Armstrong's qualifications as an aeronaut, which can be gathered from other sources and are admitted to be unsurpassed among the air pilots of England. For many years he has been looked upon as among the most daring and most intellectual of flying men, a combination which has enabled him to both invent and test several new devices, including the common gyroscopic attachment which is known by his name. The main body of the manuscript is written neatly in ink, but the last few lines are in pencil and are so ragged as to be hardly legible, exactly, in fact, as if they might be expected to appear if they were scribbled off hurriedly from the seat of a moving aeroplane. There are, it may be added, several stains, both on the last page and on the outside cover, which have been pronounced by the home office experts to be blood, probably human, and certainly mammalian. The fact that something closely resembling the organism of malaria was discovered in the blood, and that Joyce Armstrong is known to have suffered from intermittent fever, is a remarkable example of the new weapons which modern science has placed in the hands of our detectives. And now, a word as to the personality of the author of this epoch-making statement. Joyce Armstrong, according to the few friends who really knew something of the man, was a poet and a dreamer, as well as a mechanic and an inventor. He was a man of considerable wealth, much of which he had spent in the pursuit of his aeronautical hobby. He had four private airplanes in his hangars near Devizes, and is said to have made no fewer than 170 ascents in the course of last year. He was a retiring man with dark moods, in which he would avoid the society of his fellows. Captain Dangerfield, who knew him better than anyone, says that there were times when his eccentricity threatened to develop into something more serious. His habit of carrying a shotgun with him in his aeroplane was one manifestation of it. Another was the morbid effect which the fall of Lieutenant Myrtle had upon his mind. Myrtle, who was attempting the height record, fell from an altitude of something over 30,000 feet. Horrible to narrate, his head was entirely obliterated, though his body and limbs preserved their configuration. At every gathering of airmen, Joyce Armstrong, according to Dangerfield, would ask, with an enigmatic smile, and where, pray, is Myrtle's head? On another occasion, after dinner at the mess of the flying school on Salisbury Plain, he started a debate as to what will be the most permanent danger which airmen will have to encounter. Having listened to successive opinions as to air pockets, faulty construction, and overbanking, he ended by shrugging his shoulders and refusing to put forward his own views though he gave the impression that they differed from any advanced by his companions. It is worth remarking that after his own complete disappearance, it was found that his private affairs were arranged with a precision which may show he had a strong premonition of disaster. With these essential explanations, I will now give the narrative exactly as it stands, beginning at page 3 of the blood-soaked notebook. Nevertheless, when I dined at Reims with Caselli and Gustav Raymond, I found that neither of them was aware of any particular danger in the higher layers of the atmosphere. I did not actually say what was in my thoughts, but I got so near to it that if they had any corresponding idea, 
they could not have failed to express it. But they are two empty, vainglorious fellows with no thought beyond seeing their silly names in the newspaper. It is interesting to note that neither of them had ever been much beyond the 20,000-foot level. Of course, men have been higher than this both in balloons and in the ascent of mountains. It must be well above that point that the aeroplane enters the danger zone, always presuming that my premonitions are correct. Aeroplaning has been with us now for more than 20 years, and one might well ask, why should this peril be only revealing itself in our day? The answer is obvious. In the old days of weak engines, when a hundred horsepower gnome or green was considered ample for every need, the flights were very restricted. Now that 300 horsepower is the rule rather than the exception, visits to the upper layers have become easier and more common. Some of us can remember how, in our youth, Garros made a worldwide reputation by attaining 19,000 feet, and it was considered a remarkable achievement to fly over the Alps. Our standard now has been immeasurably raised, and there are 20 high flights for one in former years. Many of them have been undertaken with impunity. The 30,000-foot level has been reached time after time with no discomfort beyond cold and asthma. What does this prove? A visitor might descend upon this planet a thousand times and never see a tiger. Yet tigers exist. And if he chanced to come down into a jungle, he might be devoured. There are jungles of the upper air, and there are worse things than tigers which inhabit them. I believe in time they will map these jungles accurately out. Even at the present moment, I could name two of them. One of them lies over the Pau Barrett's district in France. Another is just over my head as I write here in my house in Wiltshire. I rather think there is a third in the Hamburg-Weisbaden district. It was the disappearance of airmen that first set me thinking. Of course, everyone said that they had fallen into the sea, but that did not satisfy me at all. First, there was Verrier in France. His machine was found near Bayonne, but they never got his body. There was the case of Baxter also, who vanished, though his engine and some of the iron fixings were found in a wood in Lincolnshire. In that case, Dr. Middleton of Amesbury, who was watching the flight with a telescope, declares that just before the clouds obscured the view, he saw the machine, which was at an enormous height, suddenly rise perpendicularly upwards in a succession of jerks in a manner that he would have thought to be impossible. That was the last scene of Baxter. There was a correspondence in the papers, but it was never led to anything. There were several other similar cases, and then there was the death of Hay Connor. What a cackle there was about an unsolved mystery of the air, and what columns in the halfpenny papers, and yet how little was ever done to get to the bottom of the business. He came down in a tremendous volplane from an unknown height. He never got off his machine and died in his pilot's seat. Died of what? Heart disease, said the doctors. Rubbish. Hey, Connor's heart was as sound as mine is. What did Venables say? 
Venables was the only man who was at his side when he died. He said that he was shivering and looked like a man who had been badly scared. Died of fright, said Venables, but could not imagine what he was frightened about. Only said one word to Venables, which sounded like monstrous. They could make nothing of it at the inquest, but I could make something of it. Monsters. That was the last word of poor Harry Hay Connor, and he did die of fright, just as Venables thought. And then there was Myrtle's head. Do you really believe, does anyone really believe, that a man's head could be driven clean into his body by the force of a fall? Well, perhaps it may be possible, but I, for one, have never believed that it was so with Myrtle. And the grease upon his clothes, all slimy with grease, said somebody at the inquest. Queer that nobody got thinking about that. I did, but then I had been thinking for a good long time. I've made three ascents, how Dangerfield used to chafe at me about my shotgun. But I've never been high enough. Now, with this new, light Paul Verner machine and its 175 rober, I should easily touch the 30,000 tomorrow. I'll have a shot at the record. Maybe I shall have a shot at something else as well. Of course it's dangerous. If a fellow wants to avoid danger, he had best keep out of flying altogether and subside finally into flannel slippers and a dressing gown. But I'll visit the air jungle tomorrow, and if there's anything there, I shall know it. If I return, I'll find myself a bit of celebrity. If I don't, this notebook may explain what I am trying to do and how I lost my life in doing it. But no drivel about accidents or mysteries, if you please. I chose my Paul Veroner monoplane for the job. There's nothing like a monoplane when real work is to be done. Beaumont found that out in very early days. For one thing, it doesn't mind damp, and the weather looks to be as if we should be in the clouds all the time. It's a bonny little model and answers my hand like a tender-mouthed horse. The engine is a 10-cylinder rotary rover working up to 175. It has all the modern improvements, enclosed fuselage, high-curved landing skids, brakes, gyroscopic steadiers, and three speeds worked by an alteration of the angle of the planes upon the Venetian blind principle. I took a shotgun with me and a dozen cartridges filled with buckshot. You should have seen the face of Perkins, my old mechanic, when I directed him to put them in. I was dressed like an Arctic explorer with two jerseys under my overalls, thick socks inside my padded boots, a storm cap with flaps, and my talc goggles. It was stifling outside the hangars, but I was going for the summit of the Himalayas and had to dress for the part. Perkins knew there was something on and implored me to take him with me. Perhaps I should if I were using a biplane, but a monoplane is a one-man show if you want to get the last foot of lift out of it. Of course, I took an oxygen bag. The man who goes for the altitude record without one will either be frozen or smothered or both. I had a good look at the planes, the rudder bar, and the elevating lever before I got in. Everything was in order so far as I could see. Then I switched on my engine and found that she was running sweetly. 
When they let her go, she rose almost at once upon the lowest speed. I circled my home field once or twice just to warm her up, and then with a wave to Perkins and the others, I flattened out my planes and put her on her highest. She skimmed like a swallow downwind for eight or ten miles until I turned her nose up a little and she began to climb in a great spiral for the cloud bank above me. It's all important to rise slowly and adapt yourself to the pressure as you go. It was a close, warm day for an English September, and there was the hush and heaviness of impending rain. Now and then there came sudden puffs of wind from the southwest. One of them so gusty and unexpected that it caught me napping and turned me half round for an instant. I remember the time when gusts and whirls and air pockets used to be the things of danger, before we learned to put an overmastering power into our engines. Just as I reached the cloud banks with the altimeter marking 3,000, down came the rain. My word, how it poured. It drummed upon my wings and lashed against my face, blurring my glasses so that I could hardly see. I got down onto a low speed, for it was painful to travel against it. As I got higher, it became hail, and I had to turn tail to it. One of my cylinders was out of action, a dirty plug, I should imagine, but still, I was rising steadily with plenty of power. After a bit, the trouble passed, whatever it was, and I heard the full, deep-throated purr, the ten singing as one. That's where the beauty of our modern silencers come in. We can at last control our engines by ear. How they squeal and squeak and sob when they are in trouble. All those cries for help were wasted in the old days when every sound was swallowed up by the monstrous racket of the machine. If only the early aviators could come back and see the beauty and perfection of the mechanism which have been bought at the cost of their lives. About 9.30, I was nearing the clouds. Down below me, all blurred and shadowed with rain, lay the vast expanse of Salisbury Plain. Half a dozen flying machines were doing hack work at the thousand-foot level, looking like little black swallows against the green background. I dare say they were wondering what I was doing up in Cloudland. Suddenly, a gray curtain drew across beneath me, and the wet folds of vapor were swirling round my face. It was clammy, cold, and miserable, but I was above the hailstorm, and that was something gained. The cloud was as dark and thick as London fog. In my anxiety to get clear, I cocked her nose up until the automatic alarm bell rang, and I actually began to slide backward. My sopped and dripping wings had made me heavier than I thought, but presently I was in lighter cloud and soon had cleared the first layer. There was a second, opal-colored and fleecy, at a great height above my head, a white, unbroken ceiling above, and a dark, unbroken floor below with the monoplane laboring upward upon a vast spiral between them. It is deadly lonely in these cloud spaces. Once a great flight of some small water birds went past me, flying very fast to the westward. The quick whir of their wings and their musical cry were cheery to my ear. I fancy that they were teal, but I am a wretched zoologist. Now that we humans have become birds, we must really learn to know our brethren by sight. The wind, down beneath me, whirled and swayed the broad cloud plain. 
once a great eddy formed in it a whirlpool of vapor, and through it, as down a funnel, I caught sight of the distant world. A large white biplane was passing at a vast depth beneath me. I fancy it was the morning mail service betwixt Bristol and London. Then the drift swirled inwards again, and the great solitude was unbroken. Just after ten, I touched the lower edge of the upper cloud stratum. It consisted of fine diaphanous vapor, drifting swiftly from the westward. The wind had been steadily rising all this time, and it was now blowing a sharp breeze, twenty-eight an hour by my gauge. Already it was very cold, though my altimeter only marked nine thousand. The engines were working beautifully, and we went droning steadily upwards. The cloud bank was thicker than I had expected, but at last it thinned out into a golden mist before me, and then, in an instant, I had shot out from it, and there was an unclouded sky and a brilliant sun above my head, all blue and gold above, all shining silver below, one vast glimmering plain as far as my eyes could reach. It was a quarter past ten o'clock, and the barograph needle pointed up to twelve thousand eight hundred. Up I went and up. My ears concentrated upon the deep purring of my motor, my eyes busy always with the watch, the revolution indicator, the petrol lever, the oil pump. No wonder aviators are said to be a fearless race. With so many things to think of, there is no time to trouble about oneself. About this time I noted how unreliable is the compass when above a certain height from the earth. At 15,000 feet, mine was pointing east and a point south. The sun and the wind gave me my true bearings. I had hoped to reach an eternal stillness in these high altitudes, but with every thousand feet of ascent the gale grew stronger. My machine groaned and trembled in every joint and rivet as she faced it, and swept away like a sheet of paper when I banked her on the turn, skimming downwind at a greater pace, perhaps, than ever mortal man has moved. Yet I had always to turn again and tack up into the wind's eye, for it was not merely a height record that I was after. By all my calculations, it was above Little Wiltshire that my air jungle lay and all my labor might be lost if I struck the outer layers at some further point. When I reached the 19,000-foot level, which was about midday, the wind was so severe that I looked with some anxiety to the stays of my wings, expecting momentarily to see them snap or slacken. I even cast loose the parachute behind me and fastened its hook into the ring of my leathern belt, so as to be ready for the worst. Now was the time when a bit of scamped work by the mechanic is paid for by the life of the aeronaut, but she held together bravely. Every cord and strut was humming and vibrating like so many harp strings, but it was glorious to see how, for all the beating and the buffeting, she was still the conqueror of nature and the mistress of the sky. There is surely something divine in man himself that he should rise, so superior to the limitations which creation seemed to impose. Rise, too, by such unselfish, heroic devotion as this air conquest has shown. Talk of human degeneration! When has such a story as this been written in the annals of our race? 
These were the thoughts in my head as I climbed that monstrous inclined plane, with the wind sometimes beating in my face and sometimes whistling behind my ears, while the cloudland beneath me fell away to such a distance that the folds and hummocks of silver had all smoothed out into one flat, shining plane. But suddenly I had a horrible and unprecedented experience. I have known before what it is to be in what our neighbors have called a turbion, but never on such a scale as this. That huge, sweeping river of wind of which I have spoken had, as it appears, whirlpools within it which were as monstrous as itself. Without a moment's warning, I was dragged suddenly into the heart of one. I spun round for a minute or two with such velocity that I almost lost my senses and then fell suddenly left wing foremost, down the vacuum funnel in the center. I dropped like a stone and lost nearly a thousand feet. It was only my belt that kept me in my seat, and the shock and breathlessness left me hanging half insensible over the side of the fuselage. But I am always capable of a supreme effort. It is my one great merit as an aviator. I was conscious that the descent was slower, the whirlpool was a cone rather than a funnel, and I had come to the apex. There was a terrific wrench throwing my weight all to one side. I leveled my planes and brought her head away from the wind. In an instant, I had shot out of the eddies and was skimming down the sky. Then, shaken but victorious, I turned her nose up and began once more my steady grind on the upward spiral. I took a large sweep to avoid the danger spot of the whirlpool, and soon I was safely above it. Just after one o'clock, I was 21,000 feet above the sea level. To my great joy, I had topped the gale, and with every hundred feet of ascent, the air grew stiller. On the other hand, it was very cold, and I was conscious of that peculiar nausea which goes with rarefaction of the air. For the first time, I unscrewed the mouth of my oxygen bag and took an occasional whiff of the glorious gas. I could feel it running like a cordial through my veins and was exhilarated almost to the point of drunkenness. I shouted and sang as I soared upward into the cold, still outer world. It is very clear to me that the insensibility which came upon Glacier and, in a lesser-known degree, upon Coxwhale, when in 1862 they ascended in a balloon to the height of 30,000 feet, was due to the extreme speed with which a perpendicular ascent is made. Doing it at an easy gradient and accustoming oneself to the lessened barometric pressure by slow degrees, there are no such dreadful symptoms. At the same great height, I found that even without my oxygen inhaler, I could breathe without undue distress. It was bitterly cold, however, and my thermometer was at zero Fahrenheit. At 1.30, I was nearly seven miles above the surface of the earth, and still ascending steadily. I found, however, that the rarefied air was giving markedly less support to my plane, and that my angle of ascent had to be considerably lowered in the consequence. It was already clear that even with my light weight and strong engine power, there was a point in front of me where I should be held. To make matters worse, one of my sparking plugs was in trouble again, and there was intermittent misfiring in the engine. My heart was heavy with the fear of failure. It was about that time that I had a most extraordinary experience. 
Something whizzed past me in a trail of smoke and exploded with a loud hissing sound, sending forth a cloud of steam. For the instant, I could not imagine what had happened. Then I remembered that the earth is forever being bombarded by meteor stones and would be hardly inhabitable were they not, in nearly every case, turned to vapor in the outer layers of the atmosphere. Here is a new danger for the high-altitude man. For two others passed me when I was nearing the 40,000-foot mark. I cannot doubt that at the edge of the Earth's envelope, the risk would be a very real one. My barograph needle marked 41,300 when I became aware that I could go no further. Physically, the strain was not as yet greater than I could bear, but my machine had reached its limit. The attenuated air gave no firm support to the wings, and the least tilt developed into a sideslip, while she seemed sluggish on her controls. Possibly, had the engine been at its best, another thousand feet might have been within our capacity. But it was still misfiring, and two out of the ten cylinders appeared to be out of the action. If I had not already reached the zone for which I was searching, then I should never see it upon this journey. But was it not possible that I had attained it? Soaring in circles like a monstrous hawk upon the 40,000-foot level, I let the monoplane guide herself, and with my Mannheim glass, I made a careful observation of my surroundings. The heavens were perfectly clear. There was no indication of those dangers which I had imagined. I have said that I was soaring in circles. It struck me suddenly that I would do well to take a wider sweep and open up a new air tract. If the hunter entered an earth jungle, he would drive through it if he wished to find his game. My reasoning had led me to believe that the air jungle which I had imagined lay somewhere over Wiltshire. This should be to the south and west of me. I took my bearings from the sun, for the compass was hopeless and no trace of earth was to be seen, nothing but the distant silver cloud plain. However, I got my direction as best I might and kept her headed straight to the mark. I reckoned that my petrol supply would not last for more than another hour or so, but I could afford to use it up to the last drop, since a single magnificent volplane could at any time take me to the earth. Suddenly, I was aware of something new. The air in front of me had lost its crystal clearness. It was full of long, ragged wisps of something which I can only compare to very fine cigarette smoke. It hung about in wreaths and coils, turning and twisting slowly in the sunlight. As the monoplane shot through it, I was aware of a faint taste of oil upon my lips and there was a greasy scum upon the woodwork of the machine. Some infinitely fine organic matter appeared to be suspended in the atmosphere. There was no life there. It was incohate and diffuse, extending for many square acres and then fringing off into the void. No, it was not life, but might not it be the remains of life? Above all, might it not be the food of life, of monstrous life, even as the humble grease of the ocean is the food for the mighty whale. The thought was in my mind when my eyes looked upward and I saw the most wonderful vision that ever man has seen. Can I hope to convey it to you even as I saw it myself last Thursday? 
Conceive a jellyfish, such as sails in our summer seas, bell-shaped and of enormous size, far larger, I should judge, than the dome of St. Paul's. It was of a light pink color, veined with a delicate green, but the whole huge fabric, so tenuous that it was but a fairy outline against the dark blue sky. It pulsated with a delicate and regular rhythm. From it there depended two long and drooping green tentacles, which swayed slowly backwards and forwards. This gorgeous vision passed gently with noiseless dignity over my head, as light and fragile as a soap bubble, and drifted upon its stately way. I had half turned my monoplane that I might look after this beautiful creature, when, in a moment, I found myself amidst a perfect fleet of them, of all sizes, but none so large as the first. Some were quite small, but the majority about as big as an average balloon, and with much the same curvature at the top. There was in them a delicacy of texture and coloring which reminded me of the finest Venetian glass. Pale shades of pink and green were the prevailing tints, but all had a lovely iridescence where the sun shimmered through their dainty forms. Some hundreds of them drifted past me, a wonderful fairy squadron of strange, unknown argosies of the sky. Creatures whose forms and substance were so attuned to these pure heights that one could not conceive anything so delicate within actual sight or sound of earth. But soon my attention was drawn to a new phenomenon, the serpents of the outer air. These were long, thin, fantastic coils of vapor-like material, which turned and twisted with great speed, flying round and round at such a pace that the eye could hardly follow them. Some of these ghost-like creatures were twenty or thirty feet long, but it was difficult to tell their girth, for their outline was so hazy that it seemed to fade away into the air around them. These air snakes were of a very light gray or smoke color, with some darker lines within, which gave the impression of a definite organism. One of them whisked past my very face, and I was conscious of a cold, clammy contact, but their composition was so unsubstantial that I could not connect them with any thought of physical danger, any more than the beautiful bell-like creatures which had preceded them. There was no more solidity in their frames than in the floating spume of a broken wave but a more terrible experience was in store for me. Floating downwards from a great height, there came a purplish patch of vapor, small as I saw it at first, but rapidly enlarging as it approached me, until it appeared to be hundreds of square feet in size. Though fashioned of some transparent, jelly-like substance, it was nonetheless of a much more definite outline and solid consistence than anything which I had seen before. There were more traces, too, of a physical organization, especially two vast, shadowy, circular plates upon either side, which may have been eyes, and a perfectly solid, white projection between them, which was curved and cruel as the beak of a vulture. The whole aspect of this monster was formidable and threatening, and it kept changing its color from a very light mauve to a dark, angry purple, so thick that it cast a shadow as it drifted between my monoplane and the sun. 
On the upper curve of its huge body, there were three great projections, which I can only describe as enormous bubbles, and I was convinced as I looked at them that they were charged with some extremely light gas, which served to buoy up the misshapen and semi-solid mass in the rarefied air. The creature moved swiftly along, keeping pace easily with the monoplane, and for twenty miles or more it formed my horrible escort, hovering over me like a bird of prey which is waiting to pounce. Its method of progression, done so swiftly that it was not easy to follow, was to throw out a long, glutinous streamer in front of it, which in turn seemed to draw forward the rest of the writhing body. So elastic and gelatinous was it that never for two successive minutes was it in the same shape, and yet each change made it more threatening and loathsome than the last. I knew that it meant mischief. Every purple flush of its hideous body told me so. The vague, goggling eyes which were turned always upon me were cold and merciless in their viscid hatred. I dipped the nose of my monoplane downward to escape it. As I did so, as quick as a flash, there shot out a long tentacle from this mass of floating blubber, and it fell as light and sinuous as a whiplash across the front of my machine. There was a loud hiss as it lay for a moment across the hot engine, and it whisked itself into the air again, while the huge, flat body drew itself together as if in sudden pain. I dipped into a vol peak, but again a tentacle fell over the monoplane and was shorn off by the propeller as easily as it might have cut through a smoke wreath. A long, gliding, sticky, serpent-like coil came from behind and caught me round the waist, dragging me out of the fuselage. I tore at it, my fingers sinking into the smooth, glue-like surface, and for an instant I disengaged myself, but only to be caught around the boot by another coil, which gave me a jerk that tilted me almost onto my back. As I fell over, I blazed off both barrels of my gun, though, indeed, it was like attacking an elephant with a pea-shooter to imagine that any human weapon could cripple that mighty bulk. And yet, I aimed better than I knew, for... With a loud report, one of the great blisters upon the creature's back exploded with the puncture of the buckshot. It was very clear that my conjecture was right, and that these vast, clear bladders were distended with some lifting gas. For in an instant, the huge, cloud-like body turned sideways, writhing desperately to find its balance, while the white beak snapped and gapped in horrible fury. But already I had shot away on the steepest glide that I dared to attempt, my engine still full on, the flying propeller and the force of gravity shooting me downward like an aerolite. Far behind me I saw a dull purplish smudge growing swiftly smaller and merging into the blue sky behind it. I was safe out of the deadly jungle of the outer air. Once out of danger, I throttled my engine, for nothing tears a machine to pieces quicker than running on full power from a height. It was a glorious spiral volplane from nearly eight miles of altitude, first to the level of the silver cloud bank, then to that of the storm cloud beneath it, and finally, in beating rain, to the surface of the earth. I saw the Bristol Channel beneath me as I broke from the clouds, but, having still some petrol in my tank, I got twenty miles inland before I found myself stranded in a field half a mile from the village of Ashcombe. There I got three tins of petrol from a passing motor car, 
and at ten minutes past six that evening, I alighted gently in my own home meadow at Devizes, after such a journey as no mortal upon earth has ever yet taken and lived to tell the tale. I have seen the beauty, and I have seen the horror of the heights, and greater beauty or greater horror than that is not within the ken of man. And now it is my plan to go once again before I give my results to the world. My reason for this is that I must surely have something to show by way of proof before I lay such a tale before my fellow men. It is true that others will soon follow and will confirm what I have said, and yet I should wish to carry conviction from the first. Those lovely iridescent bubbles of the air should not be hard to capture. They drift slowly upon their way, and the swift monoplane could intercept their leisurely course. It is likely enough that they would dissolve in the heavier layers of the atmosphere, and that some small heap of amorphous jelly might be all that I should bring to earth with me, and yet something there would surely be by which I could substantiate my story. Yes, I will go, even if I run a risk by doing so. These purple horrors would not seem to be numerous. It is probable that I shall not see one. If I do, I shall dive at once. At the worst, there was always the shotgun and my knowledge of. Here, a page of the manuscript is unfortunately missing. On the next page is written, in large, straggling writing, 43,000 feet. I shall never see earth again. They are beneath me, three of them. God help me. It is a dreadful death to die. Such, in its entirety, is the Joyce Armstrong statement. Of the man, nothing has since been seen. Pieces of his shattered monoplane have been picked up in the preserves of Mr. Bud Lushington upon the borders of Kent and Sussex, within a few miles of the spot where the notebook was discovered. If the unfortunate aviator's theory is correct, that this air jungle, as he called it, existed only over the southwest of England, then it would seem that he had fled from it at the full speed of his monoplane, but had been overtaken and devoured by these horrible creatures at some spot in the outer atmosphere, above the place where the grim relics were found. The picture of that monoplane skimming down the sky, with the nameless terrors flying as swiftly beneath it and cutting it off always from the earth, while they gradually closed in upon their victim, is one upon which a man who valued his sanity would prefer not to dwell. There are many, as I am aware, who still jeer at the facts which I have here set down. But even they must admit that Joyce Armstrong has disappeared. And I would commend them to his own words. This notebook may explain what I am trying to do and how I lost my life in doing it. But no drivel about accidents or mysteries, if you please. That story first appeared in the Strand Magazine in 1913, and this is probably one of the earliest uses of the airplane as a horror device or setting. Alright, the next story tonight, it was written by M.R. James, and a little bit of information about the author. M.R. James, uh, Montague Rhodes James, 
was born August 1st, 1862, and died June 12th, 1936. He was an accomplished antiquarian and medievalist, although he is probably most well known for his ghost stories. James perfected a form of storytelling which has since become known as Jamesian. Now, one of the tenets of James' writings, he, he really believed that the ghost should be a malevolent or an odious force, and while the friendly or helpful ghost had a place in folklore, he did not feel that the friendly ghost had any place in his writings. So, let's move on to M.R. James's story. Lost Hearts by M.R. James It was, as far as I can ascertain, in the September of the year, 1811, that a post-chaise drew up before the door of Aswerby Hall in the heart of Lincolnshire. The little boy, who was the only passenger in the chaise, and who jumped out as soon as it had stopped, looked about him with the keenest curiosity during the short interval that elapsed between the ringing of the bell and the opening of the hall door. He saw a tall, square, red-bricked house, built in the reign of Anne, a stone-pillared porch had been added to the pure classical style of 1790. The windows of the house were many, tall and narrow, with small panes and thick white woodwork. A pediment pierced with a round window crowned the front. There were wings to right and left, connected by curious glazed galleries supported by colonnades with a central block. These wings plainly contained the stables and offices of the house. Each was surmounted by an ornamental cupola with a gilded vane. An evening light shone on the buildings, making the window panes glow like so many fires. Away from the hall in front stretched a flat park studded with oaks and fringed with firs, which stood out against the sky. The clock in the church tower, buried in trees on the edge of the park, only its golden weathercock catching the light, was striking six, and the sound came gently beating down the wind. It was altogether a pleasant impression, though tinged with the sort of melancholy appropriate to an evening in early autumn that was conveyed to the mind of the boy who was standing on the porch waiting for the door to open to him. The post-chase had brought him from Warwickshire, where, some six months before, he had been left an orphan, now, owning to the generous offer of his elderly cousin, Mr. Abney, he had come to live at Aswerby. The offer was unexpected, because all who knew anything of Mr. Abney looked upon him as a somewhat austere recluse, into whose steady-going household the advent of a small boy would import a new and, it seemed, incongruous element. The truth is that very little was known of Mr. Abney's pursuits or temper. The professor of Greek at Cambridge had been heard to say that no one knew more of the religious beliefs of the later pagans than did the owner of Aswerby. Certainly his library contained all the then-available books bearing on the mysteries, the Orphic poems, the worship of Mithras, and the Neoplatonists. In the marble-paved hall stood a fine group of Mithras slaying a bull, which had been imported from the Levant at great expense by the owner. He had contributed a description of it to the Gentleman's Magazine, and he had written a remarkable series of articles in the Critical Museum on the superstitions of the Romans of the Lower Empire. He was looked upon, in fine, 
as a man wrapped up in his books, and it was a matter of great surprise among his neighbors that he should have ever have heard of his orphan cousin Stephen Elliot, much more that he should have volunteered to make him an inmate of Aswarby Hall. Whatever may have been expected by his neighbors, it is certain that Mr. Abney, the tall, the thin, the austere, seemed inclined to give his young cousin a kindly reception. The moment the front door was opened, he darted out of his study, rubbing his hands with delight. How are you, my boy? How are you? How old are you? he said. That is, you're not too much tired, I hope, by your journey to eat your supper. No, thank you, sir, said Master Elliot. I am pretty well. That's a good lad, said Mr. Abney. And how old are you, my boy? It seemed a little odd that he should have asked the question twice in the first two minutes of their acquaintance. I'm twelve years old next birthday, sir, said Stephen. And when is your birthday, my dear boy? Eleventh of September, eh? That's well, that's very well. Nearly a year hence, isn't it? I like, <laughs> I like to get these things down in my book. Sure it's twelve? Certain? Yes, quite sure, sir. Well, well, take him to Miss Brunch's room, Parks, and let him have his tea, supper, whatever it is. Yes, sir, answered the staid Mr. Parks, and conducted Stephen to the lower regions. Miss Bunch was the most comfortable and human person whom Stephen had yet to meet at Aswarby. She made him completely at home. They were great friends in a quarter of an hour, and great friends they remained. Miss Bunch had been born in the neighborhood some fifty-five years before the date of Stephen's arrival, and her residence at the hall was of twenty years' standing. Consequently, if anyone knew the ins and outs of the house and the district, Miss Bunch knew them and she was by no means disinclined to communicate her information. Certainly there were plenty of things about the hall and the hall gardens which Stephen, who was of an adventurous and inquiring turn, was anxious to have explained to him. Who built the temple at the end of the Laurel Walk? Who was the old man whose picture hung on the staircase, sitting at the table, with a skull under his hand? These and many similar points were cleared up by the resources of Miss Bunch's powerful intellect. There were others, however, of which the explanations furnished were less satisfactory. One November evening, Stephen was sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room, reflecting on his surroundings. Is Mr. Abney a good man, and will he go to heaven? he suddenly asked, with the peculiar confidence which children possess in the ability of their elders to settle these questions the decision of which is believed to be reserved for other tribunals. Good? Bless the child, said Miss Bunch. Master's a kind soul as ever I see. Didn't I ever tell you of the little boy as he took out of the street, as you may say, this seven years back? And the little girl two years after I first come here? No, do tell me about them, Miss Bunch, now, this minute. Well, said Miss Bunch, the little girl I don't seem to recollect so much about. I know Master brought her back with him from his walk one day, and, and gave orders to Miss Ellis, as was housekeeper then, as she should be took every care with, and the poor child hadn't no one belonging to her. She told me so her own self. And here she lived with us a matter of three weeks, it might be, and then, whether she were something of a gypsy in her blood, or had not, but one morning she was out of bed before, before any of us had opened an eye, 
and neither track nor trace of her have I seen on since. Master was wonderful put about, and had all the pawns dragged, but it's my belief that she was had by them gypsies, for there was singing round the house for as much as an hour the night she went, and Parks, he declares he heard them a-callin' in the woods all that afternoon. Dear, dear, a hod child she was, so silent in her ways, but I was wonderful taken up with her. So domesticated she was. Surprising. And what about the little boy, said Stephen? Ah, that poor boy, sighed Miss Bunch. He were a foreigner. Giovanni, he called hisself. And he come a-tweaking his erdy-gurdy round and about the drive one winter day, and Master at him in a minute, and asked him all about where he came from, and how old he was, and how he made his way, and, and where was his relatives, and all as kind as heart could wish. But it went the same way with him. They're a hunruly lot, them foreign nations, I do suppose, and he was off one fine morning just the same as the girl. Why he went and what he done was our question for as much a year after, for he never took his erdy-gurdy, and there it lays on the shelf. The remainder of the evening was spent by Stephen in miscellaneous cross-examination of Miss Bunch and in efforts to extract a tune from the hurdy-gurdy. That night he had a curious dream. At the end of the passage at the top of the house, in which his bedroom was situated, there was an old, disused bathroom. It was kept locked, but the upper half of the door was glazed, and since the muslin curtains which used to hang there had long been gone, you could look in and see the lead-lined bath affixed to the wall on the right hand, with its head towards the window. On the night of which I am speaking, Stephen Elliot found himself, as he thought, looking through the glazed door. The moon was shining through the window, and he was gazing at a figure which lay in the bath. His description of what he saw reminds me of what I once beheld myself in the famous vaults of St. Micken's Church in Dublin, which possesses the horrid property of preserving corpses from decay for centuries. A figure inexpressibly thin and pathetic, of a dusty, leaden color, enveloped in a shroud-like garment, the thin lips croaked into a faint and dreadful smile, the hands pressed tightly over the region of the heart. As he looked upon it, a distant, almost inaudible moan seemed to issue from its lips, and the arms began to stir. The terror of the sight forced Stephen backwards, and he awoke to the fact that he was indeed standing on the cold, boarded floor of the passage in the full light of the moon. With a courage which I do not think can be common among boys of his age, he went to the door of the bathroom to ascertain if the figure of his dream were really there. It was not and he went back to bed. Miss Bunch was much impressed next morning by his story, and went so far as to replace the muslin curtain over the glazed door of the bathroom. Mr. Abney, moreover, to whom he confided his experience at breakfast, was greatly interested and made notes of the matter in what he called his book. The spring equinox was approaching, as Mr. Abney frequently reminded his cousin, adding that this had been always considered by the ancients to be a critical time for the young, that Stephen would do well to take care of himself and to shut his bedroom window at night, and that Censorinus had some valuable remarks on the subject. Two incidents that occurred about this time made an impression upon Stephen's mind. The first was after an unusually uneasy and oppressed night that he had passed through, he could not recall any particular dream that he had had. 
The following evening, Miss Bunch was occupying herself in mending his nightgown. Gracious me, Master Stephen, she broke forth rather irritably. How do you manage to tear your nightdress all to flinders this way? Look here, sir, what trouble you do give poor servants that have to darn and mend after you. There was indeed a most destructive and apparently wanton series of slits or scoring in the garment, which would undoubtedly require a skillful needle to make good. They were confined to the left side of the chest, long, parallel slits, about six inches in length, some of them not quite piercing the texture of the linen. Stephen could only express his entire ignorance of their origin. He was sure that they were not there the night before. But, he said, Miss Bunch, they are just the same as the scratches on the outside of my bedroom door, and I'm sure I never had anything to do with making them. Miss Bunch gazed at him open-mouthed, then snatched up a candle, departed hastily from the room, and was heard making her way upstairs. In a few minutes, she came down. Well, she said, Master Stephen, it's a funny thing to me how them marks and scratches can a come there. Too high up for any cat or dog to have made em, much less a rat, for all the world like a Chinaman's fingernails, as my uncle in the tea trade used to tell us of when we was girls together. I wouldn't say nothing to Master, not if I was you, Master Stephen, my dear, and just turn the key of the door when you go to your bed. I always do, Miss Bunch, as soon as I've said my prayers. Ah, that's a good child. Always say your prayers, and then no one can't hurt you. Herewith, Miss Bunch addressed herself to mending the injured nightground with intervals of meditation until bedtime. This was on Friday night in March, 1812. On the following evening, the usual duet of Stephen and Miss Bunch was augmented by the sudden arrival of Mr. Parks, the butler, who as a rule kept himself rather to himself in his own pantry. He did not see that Stephen was there. He was, moreover, flustered and less slow of speech than was his wont. Master may get up his own wine if he likes of an evening, was his first remark. Either I do it in the daytime or not at all, Miss Bunch. I don't know what it may be, very like it's the rats, or the wind got into the cellars, but I'm not so young as I was, and I can't go through with it as I have done. Well, Mr. Parks, you know it's a surprising place for rats, is the hall. I'm not denying that, Miss Bunch, and many a time I've heard the tale from the men in the shipyards about the rats that can speak. I never laid no confidence in that before, but tonight, if I'd demeaned myself to lay my ear to the door of the further bin, I could pretty much have heard what they were a-saying. Oh, there, Mr. Parks, I've no patience with your fancies. Rats talking in the wine cellars, indeed. Well, Miss Bunch, I've no wish to argue with you. All I say is, if you choose to go to the far bin and lay your ear to the door, you may prove my words this minute. What nonsense you talk, Mr. Parks. Not fit for children to listen to. Why, you'll be frightening Master Stephen there out of his wits. What? Master Stephen? said Parks, awaking to the consciousness of the boy's presence. Master Stephen knows well enough when I'm a-playing a joke with you, Miss Bunch. In fact, Master Stephen knew much too well to suppose that Mr. Parks had, in the first instance, intended a joke. He was interested not altogether pleasantly, in the situation. 
but all his questions were unsuccessful in inducing the butler to give any more detailed account of his experience in the wine cellar. We have now arrived at March 24, 1812. It was a day of curious experience for Stephen. A windy, noisy day which filled the house and the gardens with a restless impression. As Stephen stood by the fence of the grounds and looked out into the park, he felt as if an endless procession of unseen people were sweeping past him on the wind, borne on relentlessly and aimlessly, vainly striving to stop themselves, to catch at something that might arrest their flight and bring them once again into contact with the living world of which they had formed a part. After luncheon that day, Mr. Abney said, Stephen, my boy, do you think you could manage to come to me tonight as late as eleven o'clock in my study? I shall be busy until that time, and I wish to show you something connected with your future life, which it is most important you should know. You are not to mention this matter to Miss Munch, nor to anyone else in the house, and you had better go to your room at the usual time. Here was a new excitement added to life. Stephen eagerly grasped at the opportunity of sitting up till eleven o'clock. He looked in at the library door on his way upstairs that evening, and saw a brazier, which he had often noticed in the corner of the room, moved out before the fire. An old silver gilt cup stood on the table, filled with red wine, and some written sheets of paper lay near it. Mr. Abney was sprinkling some incense on the brazier from a round silver box as Stephen passed, but did not seem to notice his step. The wind had fallen, and there was a still night and a full moon. At about ten o'clock, Stephen was standing at the open window of his bedroom, looking out over the country. Still as the night was, the mysterious population of the distant moonlit woods was not yet lulled to rest. From time to time, strange cries as of lost and despairing wanderers sounded from across the mere. They might be the notes of owls or water birds, yet they did not quite resemble either sound. Were not they coming nearer? Now they sounded from the near side of the water, and in a few moments they seemed to be floating about among the shrubberies. Then they ceased. But just as Stephen was thinking of shutting the window and resuming his reading of Robinson Crusoe, he caught sight of two figures standing on the graveled terrace that ran along the garden side of the hall. The figures of a boy and a girl, as it seemed. They stood side by side, looking up at the windows. Something in the form of the girl recalled irresistibly his dream of the figure in the bath. The boy inspired him with more acute fear. Whilst the girl stood still, half-smiling, with her hands clasped over her heart, the boy, a thin shape with black hair and ragged clothing, raised his arms in the air with an appearance of menace and of unappeasable hunger and longing. The moon shone upon his almost transparent hands, and Stephen saw that the nails were fearfully long and that the light shone through them. As he stood with his arms thus raised, he disclosed a terrifying spectacle. On the left side of his chest there opened a black and gaping rent, and there fell upon Stephen's brain, rather than upon his ear, the impression of one of those hungry and desolate cries that he had heard resounding over the woods of Aswerby all that evening. In another moment this dreadful pair had moved swiftly and noiselessly over the dry gravel, and he saw them no more.
inexpressibly frightened as he was, he determined to take his candle and go down to Mr. Abney's study, for the hour appointed for their meeting was near at hand. The study, or library, opened out of the front hall on one side, and Stephen, urged on by his terrors, did not take long in getting there. To effect an entrance was not so easy. It was not locked, he felt sure, for the key was on the outside of the door as usual. His repeated knocks produced no answer. Mr. Abney was engaged. He was speaking. What? Why did he try to cry out? And why was the cry choked in his throat? Had he, too, seen the mysterious children? But now everything was quiet, and the door yielded to Stephen's terrified and frantic pushing. On the table in Mr. Abney's study, certain papers were found which explained the situation to Stephen Elliot when he was of an age to understand them. The most important sentences were as follows. It was a belief very strongly and generally held by the ancients, of whose wisdom in these matters I have had such experience as induces me to place confidence in their assertions, that by enacting certain processes, which to us moderns have something of a barbaric complexion, a very remarkable enlightenment of the spiritual facilities in man may be attained, that, for example, by absorbing the personalities of a certain number of his fellow creatures, an individual may gain a complete ascendancy over those orders of spiritual beings which control the elemental forces of our universe. It is recorded of Simon Magnus that he was able to fly in the air, to become invisible, or to assume any form he pleased by the agency of the soul of a boy whom, to use the libelous phrase employed by the author of the Clementine Recognitions, he had murdered. I find it set down, moreover, with considerable detail in the writings of Hermes Trismegistus, that certain happy results may be produced by the absorption of the hearts of not less than three human beings below the age of twenty-one years. To the testing of the truth of this receipt I have devoted the greater part of the last twenty years, selecting as the corpora vila of my experiments such persons as could conveniently be removed without occasioning a sensible gap in society. The first step I effected by the removal of one Phoebe Stanley, a girl of gypsy extraction, on March 24, 1792. The second by the removal of a wandering Italian lad named Giovanni Paoli on the night of March 23, 1805. The final victim to employ a word repugnant in the highest degree to my feeling, must be my cousin, Stephen Elliot. His day must be this March 24, 1812. The best means of effecting the required absorption is to remove the heart from the living subject, to reduce it to ashes, and to mingle them with about a pint of some red wine, preferably port. The remains of the first two subjects, at least, it will be well to conceal. A disused bathroom or wine cellar will be found convenient for such a purpose. Some annoyance may be experienced from the psychic portion of the subjects, which popular language dignifies with the name of ghosts. But the man of philosophic temperament, to whom alone the experiment is appropriate, will be little prone to attach importance to the feeble efforts of these beings to wreak their vengeance on him. I contemplate with the liveliest satisfaction 
the enlarged and emancipated existence which the experiment, if successful, will confer on me, not only placing me beyond the reach of human justice, so-called, but eliminating, to a great extent, the prospect of death itself. Mr. Abney was found in his chair, his head thrown back, his face stamped with an expression of rage, fright, and mortal pain. In his left side was a terrible, lacerated wound, exposing the heart. There was no blood on his hands, and a long knife that lay on the table was perfectly clean. A savage wildcat might have inflicted the injuries. The window of the study was open, and it was the opinion of the coroner that Mr. Abney had met his death by the agency of some wild creature. But Stephen Elliott's study of the papers I have quoted led him to a very different conclusion. That story was first printed in Ghost Stories of an Antiquary in 1904. Now, this, this story has been filmed several times. Um, the first filming of it has, has been lost. There's no, there, there's, there's no recordings of it left available. However, it was uh, most recently filmed in 1973 for the BBC's A Ghost Story for Christmas. And that is, uh, it's, it's still possible to find that one out there. And uh, I would uh, I would recommend uh, going ahead and looking that up. It's it's kind of interesting. Well, thank you for spending the evening with us tonight. And as always, I need to remind you that you can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and any place you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please, please stop by iTunes and leave us a rating. The more ratings we get, the more likely it is we are to get some exposure and uh, grow our audience a little bit. We also have a Facebook page, Bygone Tales Podcast. Uh, currently, the Facebook page, I, I really just periodically use it for, for announcements. Um, I will, on occasion, once a week or so, put up a, a fable by Ambrose Bierce. Uh, I also occasionally throw up a, uh, a quote that I come across that, that particularly tickles me. Uh, but please feel free to come by our Facebook page uh, if you if you like the show, uh, you know, give us a like and uh, and and follow the page. Uh, you know, the more followers we get, the uh, the more I know I'm uh, I'm reaching some people. Uh, you can also find us at our web page, McCartneyLane.com. That's M C C A R T N E Y L A N E dot com. And, uh, and there you can find all of our, all of our episodes, uh, as well as links to download them. Uh, if you want to contact us by email, bygonetales at gmail.com. That's B-Y-G-O-N-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at gmail.com. I have to admit, I'm not the best at staying in contact with email, but if you, uh, if you drop me a line, I will do my best to, uh, to send one back to you. Well... Thank you again for spending your evening with us, and until next time.
And if you've enjoyed the stories read tonight, please, by all means, check out oldstyletales.com. All one word. You know, I, I think their website says it best. Quote, Old Style Tales Press is an independent literary press which publishes crafted anthologies of classic ghost stories, tales of horror, and the supernatural from the golden age of horror fiction, 1818 to 1937. Editions featuring original illustrations, annotations, and opening and closing commentary on each story. And I have to tell you, the production quality of these books is absolutely fantastic. And really, it's a very, very attractive price point in order to purchase these. You can buy them either as ebook or as physical books that you can hold in your hand. And if you're a fan of books like I am, I know you're going to go for the physical books that you can hold in your hand. However, you can get a collection of all the ebooks that they have for a very affordable price. Please go and check them out. It's a great product that they put out. In fact, I recommend it so highly that they're not even actually promoting this show. I just really, really like their product. So check them out. OldStyleTales.com.